0: This song I'm not trying to wear out, but just about everybody here knows it. We was doing it at Tuesday nights, so even the kids know it, probably better than I do. But I thought it might be real good leading into a good sermon, so uh, let's do our best there. Thank you. We have to have Rick special music. Yeah, he's doing everything. Lost away. Oh.
1: we have somebody specifically written down for scripture reading, so I don't want to take anybody's place if anybody was prepared to do it, but otherwise I will read our scripture this morning, because um, we didn't have one, anybody specifically marked down on the bulletin. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke 10, verses 25 through 28. Luke 10, verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're very happy to have Pastor Tucker here with us and we'll turn the program over to him at this time.
2: Good morning, church.
1: It's good to be here.
2: Today is a Chamber of Commerce day. Look outside at that weather. Man, that's that's the kind of advertising you need for Marshville right there. Gorgeous weather. I was in Madison a month ago and it snowed on me, so I know that it's not always this way this time of the year. All right, I do know that, but uh, but it's a gorgeous place, a, a beautiful part of the country, and thank you for the wonderful weather. I, I Someone told me you ordered it up just for me, and I appreciate that. They neglected to do that a month ago in Madison, but they did it here, so thank you. I uh, retired almost two years ago from Faith for Today after 16 years leading that ministry and being the, co-host, the, the host and, and then co-host of Lifestyle Magazine, uh, the flagship program, and uh, Thoroughly love that ministry, being on television, something I didn't plan on doing, but amazing how God has different plans for your life. And um, then I I planted a church. My wife and I helped plant a church in our retirement, and while we're doing that, and it's grown to about 180 members now, it's been around for about three and a half years, we praise God for that. And uh, then recently they asked me to be the interim senior pastor for the university church in Keene, Texas. And so when I'm um, not otherwise occupied, I pastor a 3,200-member church. So keep me in your prayers, because retirement's not going exactly like I had anticipated it would. My golf game is really suffering, and I'm upset about that. But uh, anyway, God God has got a plan for us. We don't always understand what it is. Um, Open your Bible, if you would, please, to Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter. There's a story there that you're all aware of. But you know when we read these stories sometimes we read them through our western eyes rather than through the eyes of the first listeners because they had a cultural background with which they viewed the story just as you and I have a cultural background with which we view our stories. Uh, Your cultural background is similar to mine we live in the same era, we live in the same country, different parts of that country but still we have a similar background, religious beliefs that are similar and so we view it one way, but the people in that day viewed it a little bit differently than we do. And let me explain that to you as we go along. First of all, we, have, we start with verse 25 of Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter, and it said, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the interesting thing is, here is that when a teacher was to teach, he would sit down. So the, the, um, the position for preaching was to sit down. Now, if I could sit down and be comfortable, you know, you have no idea how long I could preach. So you're thankful that I stand up and you're seated, right? And so uh, the congregation, his teachers, his pupils would be seated as well. And when it came time for a pupil to recite or to ask a question, the pupil would stand out of respect for the teacher. So Jesus has been teaching and this lawyer stood Feigning respect. But Luke, in his writing of the story, does it after the fact, so he knows that the young man was there to test Jesus? Jesus may not have been immediately aware of this, but suspected something with the nature of the question he asked. Now notice the question he asked Do you see a flaw in the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me ask you this what do you do to inherit anything? Nothing. <laughs> and so he's saying, What must I do to get something that I should ordinarily get without doing anything for? <laughs> is basically what he's saying. An inheritance is something gifted to you by someone with whom you live in relationship with because they love you. They give it to you because you are in relationship with them. I have an aunt who died about a year ago, and I was born on her birthday, and so we had a close relationship. And when she died, she did not have much, but what little bit she had was gifted to me and my sister and uh, two of our cousins. And so we ended up with about $1,000 a piece because that's what's left over after we paid off all her bills. But still, it was an inheritance, right? It's something that I didn't do anything to earn. It was given to me because I was in relationship with my Aunt Maxine. So the the question itself is flawed. Jesus sees the flaw in the question. And so his answer, because Jesus realizes this young man may be trying to trick him or to trap him, and so he's going to be a little bit cagey with his answer at first. And we'll see that as we go along. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, speaking of Jesus, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So he answers the question with a question. (laughs) He doesn't answer. He's saying, all right, let's fill you out. Let's see where you are and where you're going with this before I allow myself to be committed one way or the other. I just want to see where you are. So he answers a question with a question. What does it say in the law? How does it read to you? The lawyer now realizes what Jesus is doing, and so he answers in a way that is actually parroting what he's heard Jesus say. Listen to this. Um. And so, uh, verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, how I know is he's being cagey with him, because actually, that's something that Jesus had said. We read that in our call to worship, uh, Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter, right? And Jesus said this when he was answering the question, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered by quoting two passages of scripture found in different places in the first five books of the Bible, one in Leviticus and the other in Deuteronomy, and he paired those two sayings together, something that when you look at the ancient literature of Judaism, you do not find any rabbi, any teacher, any writer ever pairing those two together to form one thought. They were always separate entities, and no one had paired them together until Jesus did. And Jesus pulled something from Leviticus and something from Deuteronomy, and he said, this is my creed. If you want to know the essence of my theology, the essence of who I am, the essence of, which I, of what I speak, uh, this is it. And he quoted from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And he changed the, the, the reading of that just slightly. If you go back and you compare the two, he, he added a little something to it. And then you shall love your neighbor with yourself. He, compa- he put those two together. The young attorney obviously had been sizing up his prey for some time. He's been watching him so that he would know how to trick him. And so he repeated what Jesus had answered earlier back to Jesus. Jesus realizes, all right, he's playing games with me now because no one ever paired those two together before I did it. And so he's answered me with my own words. He's answered me with my own words. Um, he's quoting back to Jesus that which he's already said. Um, and so verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, in one sense, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, this is what you do to inherit eternal life. But when you look at the absurdity of the answer, you realize that that's not what he's saying. He's laying, laying down a gauntlet for this young man to open up a little bit more so he can actually teach something. You see, there's nothing you do to inherit, and inheritance is given to you. So Jesus is saying, do the impossible and you will inherit it. In other words, how do you, uh, you uh, Jesus has also said that we should be perfect, like our Father in heaven is perfect. But when you look at that in context, he's talking about perfect love. The entire chapter is about love, love love for, for God, love for each other, uh, as God loves you. The whole chapter is about love, and then he says, be you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That means it's more than just don't do bad things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, love perfectly. I've not been perfectly loving for five minutes in my life. How about you? Even when I love well, it's not perfect. And if I could love perfectly for five minutes, I'd be so proud of that I'd be guilty of the sin of pride. No one has loved because there's always a mixed motive with our love. Because you're almost as bad as I am. You're almost as human as I am. That means you have not loved perfectly for five minutes in your life. So Jesus is basically saying, all right, love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, and if you'll do that, you'll live. He might as well say to you, there's a 10-foot wall, stand flat-footed in front of it and jump over it, because you're not going to do that. And it should be obvious to anyone listening to this question and to this discourse that there's no way you can love like the Father loves, because you're as broken, as sinful as I am you can't love that way. So Jesus is not giving a requirement for life. He's saying, "All right, let's let's just take this a little step further. Do the impossible and you'll live." And the young man doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. So instead, he decides, "All right, if I'm supposed to love God and love others, how do I do this?" Now, loving others he thought was easy because to the Jewish mind, loving God means keeping Torah. Torah is and not just just the law itself, but all the laws created by the Jews to protect the law. The Sabbath is one example. There was a, a list of laws, things that you could not do on the Sabbath in order to protect the one basic law, keep the Sabbath holy. And there are about 250-some rules illustrating how to keep the Sabbath because obviously we're clueless as to how to do that. Uh, and so certain thing, uh, one example of this is if a tailor... Uh, finishes his work Friday and while he's cleaning up he happens to put uh, the sewing needle in his lapel and he forgets about it and he goes home and then Sabbath morning he walks to the synagogue with the needle in his lapel. He's just broken the Sabbath because he's carrying a burden. That's how detailed and silly some of the laws were regarded and, and it, obviously it missed the point of the Sabbath. It missed the point of everything about God's love and God's law. So, this, this is what this man has in mind. All right, I know how to keep how to love God because loving God means keeping Torah. I've been doing that all my life. I've got all the 200 and some all rules for the Sabbath. I know all the other rules regarding all of this. I've kept the law all my life. But this neighbor thing, that's what concerns me because a lot of people I don't like. So how do I do this? Do, is, who is my neighbor? So that's what he wants to know. Who's my neighbor? And that's what he asked him. He goes on with this, he, and he, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice he wants to justify himself. Can you justify yourself? No, there's only one way to be justified before God, and that is by confessing your sins to Jesus, receiving his forgiveness freely for your sins, and he justifies you by his own blood. You cannot justify yourself. But the young man says, wishing to justify himself, he, who is my neighbor? Now, he's, there are three different answers he thought that Jesus could give him for that. Answer number one is what he wanted. Your neighbor includes other Jews who keep the law like you keep the law. All right. Some of them are not all that nice, but I can love them. That's, that's okay. I can do that. That's doable. The second answer could be um, all Jews, whether they keep the law or not. Now, that's hard. That's hard. I don't know if I can do that. But it's going to be difficult. But if I can narrow it down, that would be better. The answer he never anticipated, never dreamed possible for Jesus to give, is every human being on the face of the planet Jew, Gentile, sinner, good, bad, ugly, old, young, disgusting, happy, beautiful, doesn't matter. Love them all. That's your neighbor. He never anticipated that answer. Jesus knows that that's not what he's wanting. And so Jesus instead decides that instead of answering this question directly, he's actually going to answer a little bit different question, and he's going to do it by the way of a parable. Now, the thing we have to understand about parables is this. Jesus was a Jewish theologian, and Jewish theologians operate differently than Western theologians do. As a Western theologian, I would basically state a premise. This is my premise. I have a statement. This is my statement of belief. And then I would give supporting evidence for that. I would look at this passage, look at the, the context of it, look at the word studies, go on from there to other passages, look at them in context, word studies, compile my evidence, and then come back to the original conclusion. I've now proven my point, right? So that's a, a didactic uh, method of doing study, and that's how the Westerners think. Forget that for the Jews. That's not what they did. When it was time for a Jewish theologian to give you theology, he told a parable, and the parable was the theology. If you want to know Jesus' theology, read his parables and understand them, because that's what he taught. They were not sermon illustrations. They were not pleasant little stories. These were his his statements of theological truth. This is the theologian. And when you read his parables, you understand Jesus the theologian, not just Jesus the entertaining speaker, right? So Jesus now lays, uh, gives him a parable, and, he, and the young man understands this is his statement of theology. He's answering my questions with a statement of theology, and he tells a parable that you're well acquainted with, but there's a different twist to this parable when you see it in the light of eastern eyes of that, of that century. Let's take a look at this. And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now you have to understand, he said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you were in Jerusalem, any place you went, you were going down. It doesn't, it's not just that Jerusalem was that high, because it's not, if you were going to the top of Everest, you'd still be going down to Everest, because Jewish was the social the religious, the theological, the emotional, the spiritual high point of Israel. And wherever you were in, in the world, when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. Even if you're at a higher elevation already, you go up to Jerusalem. And when you leave Jerusalem, you, every place is down. You go down to any place else you go. So this man is going down. He, Jesus does not identify the nationality of the man. He identifies the nationality of a later character in the story, which leads us to believe that the implication is that this man is a Jew, he's in Jerusalem, and he's leaving to go down to Jericho. Now, in that day, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a winding road, and it was, there were a lot of vegetation and large rocks there, which made it easy for robbers to hide. In fact, it was notorious for being a den of thieves. If you were going to be mugged in, in Palestine, it would happen on that road. That's where you would be robbed. There was also an interesting characteristic about robbers in that day, and that is that at that point, if, if they stopped you to rob you, and you gave them what they asked, they would not harm you. But if you resisted, they would either kill you or leave you wishing you were dead. This man resisted. By the way, William Barclay, when he wrote his commentary on the New Testament back in the 1950s, said that even in that day, in the 1950s, that road between Jerusalem and Jericho was still notorious as a place where robbers would inhabit, where they would still hold you up right on that road. So, so this is not a, 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 um, just an ancient phenomenon. It still was a, a current as late as the 20th century, mid-20th century. So this man apparently resisted the robbers. Maybe he didn't know he wasn't supposed to resist. We don't know. But they beat him. They, they left him for dead. They stripped him. He's absolutely naked, laying on the side of the road, unconscious. And if he's, it looks like he's dead. And if he's not dead already, he's, he's going to die. Because he is left senseless. That's the pain the man is in. Everybody understands this. This is not a surprise to them. That the man would be beaten, he tells that story, verse thirty-one. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, at first glance, all right, well, so that's the part of the story. But let's take a look at this deeper. You realize that the priesthood was an inherited class. So, you were a part of a family, a priestly line. Your daddy was a priest, therefore, you would be a priest, and your son, like you, would be a priest. You were paid a full salary, a good salary for being a priest. But you would work anywhere from two to four weeks of the year. Uh, you, there were so many priests, there were more priests than what were needed in the temple. And so, by lot, you were assigned a week or two, a couple of weeks at a time in the temple. Most of the priests, that meant that the rest of your time, by the way, was left for other money-raising activities, and so you could engage in businesses. And so the priesthood was a wealthy class. Most all of them were very wealthy. Most of them lived in Jericho. So this priest, living in Jericho, came up with the the lot and said, you're going to work X, Y, Z these two weeks, right? Now, when a priest went from Jericho to Jerusalem to work, he could take with him two people. The first would be a Levite. Same tribe as him, but different family within the tribe. So these were people who were dedicated to the service of the temple. It was a huge honor for a Levite to be chosen by a priest to go serve in the temple. He put his business aside, didn't matter. He would make sure that he would be there because this was the highlight of his career, of his life. So he would go. And then you could also take a layman with you. And from someone from any tribe didn't matter, and they would do kind of the grunt work supporting the Levite, who is supporting the priest, who's doing the work in in the temple. And by the way, being a priest was not like being a pastor. They really didn't teach much; their job was simply to order the sacrifices, to do the ceremonies, that kind of a thing. And that's what this man did. He was well acquainted with the law, obviously, because that was guiding his life. But still, he was not so much a teacher or a preacher as your pastor is. It was his job to lead out in the ceremonies in the temple. So he probably took with him those two people, went up and served in the temple for two weeks, and now he's on his way back. That means that, all told, this journey up, serving for two weeks and back, is going to cost him a little over two weeks out of his business. He's been away from home for maybe two and a half weeks. He wants to get home, right? But as he's coming home, he sees this man on the side of the road, naked, and he doesn't know if he's alive or dead. The first thing the the priest thinks about is, what does the law say I must do? That's what he thinks. And that's going on in his mind. And the law said, if this is a Jew, and you don't know if he's dead or alive, you are obligated to give aid to him. But how do you know if a naked, unconscious man's a Jew or not? (laughs) You would know a Jew by the way he speaks, or the way he dresses, neither one of which is available to you now because he's naked and unconscious. There's a third way to tell with a Jewish male that's rather indelicate and requires perhaps touching the body and rolling him over. The problem with touching the body is if he's dead already, this priest is now unclean and must return back to Jerusalem and, allow, and arrange for another week or two Cleansing ceremony, which is going to be costly, is going to take some time out of his his, his schedule. He's already been away from home for two and a half weeks. He'd like to get home. He's going to have to stay in Jerusalem and spend some more money in order to have this purification ceremony. By the way, if he goes back to work in the temple not having done the purification ceremony, the young men uh, were notorious for taking him out behind the temple and beating him to death. That's how serious they were about this. This is not an option for him. If he touches the man and he's dead, he's unclean. If he touches the man and later he dies, he's now unclean still, even if he's a Jew. However, if the man is not a Jew, um, he is not obligated to render aid. The law doesn't tell him he must, although that's a decent humanitarian thing to do. He could actually walk away from him. So if the man is not a Jew or if the man is already dead, he's under no obligation. He assumes that one of those two things is true, that either this is not a Jew or he's already dead and he's under no obligation, so he walks by because he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem and do the purification ceremony. He leaves him there. That's what he does. And he makes the assumption. Verse 32, likewise a Levite who, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. Now, the, the uh, priest was rich. That meant that he was riding an animal. He wouldn't walk the 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. He would ride, and he would go at a faster clip than someone who was walking. But if he'd taken his good friend, the Levite, from Jericho with him, that same man would be coming down to Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho as well. But he'd be walking because he most likely was not wealthy. That means he's going to be further back. So he knows that his friend, the priest, has passed by in front of him. He knows that his friend, the priest, is an expert in the law and has made the judgment that he is not obligated to render aid to this man and has gone by. The Levite may have felt a compassion for this man and wanted to pick him up and and minister to him, but his priest has already made the judgment. He's supposed to know the law better than he does. And if he touches the body, the same circumstances apply to him, he'll have to go back and do a purification ceremony as well. And the last thing he wants is to pick this man up, take him in to Jericho, find out that he's a Jew and that he's alive, and help him, and show up his priest, because he'll never work in the temple again, and he knows it. So he decides to trust his friend, the priest, without doing any due diligence himself, and walks by on the other side, because he's got to live in the same town with his priest. Now, ordinarily, when you see a story to- told this way, there are three people. You've got the president of the United States, a senator, and a congressman. You would tell the story in either ascending or descending order, right? That's normally the case. A good joke would go that way. And so Jesus has started the discourse with a priest, a Levite. So you assume that the next person is the layman who comes by. But Jesus now throws you a curveball. He doesn't include the layman. He instead sends somebody into the story who is hated by every Jew. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans despised one another, and they have been fighting for the last 500 years. The Samaritans were a half-breed between Jews and the surrounding pagans, and basically these were the, the remnant of Israel that was left behind during the Babylonian captivity, When most of the Jews were taken off and a remnant was left there to care for things, and the prophecy said that the rest would return in 70 years, and so the instruction was, don't intermarry, stay pure, take care of things, we'll be back. 70 years from now, we'll be back. Well, they intermarried. And so when the Jews came back, they rejected those who had lived there and taken care of things. You cannot rebuild the walls. You cannot build the temple. They excluded them from temple worship. And so the Samaritans gathered together in their own little area, and they built their own temple and had their own religion, which was a mixture between Judaism and paganism. They had their own sacrifice system. And so they accepted the first five books of the Bible, but none of the Psalms, none of the Prophets, but that's how they lived. And so they fought between each other. At one point, the Jews in one battle came up and destroyed the, the Samaritan's temple. The Samaritans didn't have the political might to, to, to destroy the Jewish temple, so one night on the eve of Passover, they snuck into the city, carrying the bones of dead men that they had dug up from graves. They broke into the temple and scattered the bones into the temple, making it impure, which meant that the Jews could not celebrate Passover that year. There was no military strategy with this. It was just pure meanness to get back at them. If a Jew was walking down the street and he saw a Samaritan coming toward him, he would cross over the other side of the street so that the shadow of the Samaritan would not fall on him because he hated him that much. They said God made Samaritans so he would have fuel for the fires of hell. That's the kind of hatred they had for this people. And the Samaritans hated back. Jesus uses this man not only to enter into the story, but to be the hero of the story which was absolutely unthinkable to the Jewish mind. But take a look at how he does this. He throws this curveball. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And the word that is used for compassion means that he's brought to tears. This is a deep, guttural, heartbreaking emotion this man has when he sees a fellow traveler and by the way he doesn't know if this man's a Jew or Samaritan or or Greek or anything else he doesn't know who he is he's naked and he's either dead or half dead and his heart is broken for him he doesn't know who he is this could be a man who hates him so much that if he'd seen him walking down the street, he would have crossed by on the other side so as that this man's, the Samaritan's shadow would not fall on him. This could be who he is. He knows that. And yet still his heart is filled with compassion. He doesn't worship the same way the Jews do. He does, he's a half pagan, half Jew, half pagan, and he still he feels something for this man. And so his compassion grabs his heart the Samaritan. And he came up to him, verse 34, and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. If you were on a journey, and by the way, he, he, this is a rich Samaritan because he's got his own beast. He's traveling on, on a horse or a donkey or something of that nature, right? Right? And when you, dra- when you traveled in those, those days, there's not a lot of clinics, you know, or hospitals or anything on the side of the road, any place. Uh, you would always carry with you bandages in case you got hurt or someone you found was hurt. You would carry wine because there was an alcohol content in it. Now, this was natural fermentation in those days. They didn't have other means of fermenting. And so the, wine con- the alcohol content for wine was about 3 to maybe 6% at the most. So it's a a slight alcohol content, less than what most wine would have today. But the alcohol itself would be a purifying agent, and so you would pour it on a wound in order to disinfect it. And then you would carry oil, perhaps oil mixed with some sort of spice that you thought would be healing, and then you would put the oil on the wound and put the bandage around it so that it would promote healing. Everyone carried these things with them. Everyone had it. The Samaritan was no, no exception. He saw this man, didn't know who he was. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. He's, half, he's naked and he's half dead or dead. He stops, he finds out he's, he's alive. He, he ministers to his needs. Maybe he puts water in his mouth. Maybe he, he, he finds the wounds and he covers them. He, you know he, he boils wine and oil on them, wraps them up, puts them on his own beast, and carries him into the nearest city, which would be Jericho. By the way, archaeological digs have never found any inn that was outside of any city. There were no roadside inns. You had to go into a a village or a city to find an inn. That means that a Samaritan would have a naked, half-dead Jew on his beast walking into a Jewish city. And with prejudice as high as it was, you realize what he what realized he was at risk of? If the community saw a Samaritan with a half-dead Jew, they would say, we know who did this. And they would either kill him on the spot, or when he left town, they would be waiting for him on the other side of the city. We'll teach the dirty Samaritan a lesson. That's what he knew. So in other words, this man is putting himself at great risk and great cost. To care for a man who presumably is a Jew. Knowing he's risking his own life to redeem the life of this man. But it gets better. It gets better. On the next day, verse 35, he took out two denarii. That's basically two days labor wages. So if you worked as a laborer, your, your wage was a denarii a day. And so two denarii, a uh, denarius. So two denarii would be two days' wages, is what he he gave the the innkeeper. Said, um, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will pay, repay you. Why? Because the law stated that if it took more than two denarii to care for the man, um, and the man was unable to pay, and when you're naked and half dead, you don't have any money. Obviously, the robbers took that. So the man is without means to pay. So if it costs more than that to care for him and to nurse him back to health, the innkeeper has the provision of law that he can sell the man into slavery. And so the Samaritan says, why would I save his life only to have him now serve as a slave? I can't do that to him. I can't do that to him. So here, here's enough money. I think this will cover it. But if it doesn't, you know I come back through here. I come through here regularly. When I come, I will pay the rest. You know I'm good for it. So he's redeemed the man not just by putting his own life at risk, but he's financially com- contributed to this. To, at great, this is great expense to himself. Personal risk, financial risk. He's done everything in his possible... You realize that Jesus is making the Samaritan a type of Christ. This is a passion story told in advance of one who pays the ultimate price to redeem fallen mankind. He said, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is the character of God. And if you want to be like God, this is what you do. This is what you do. He cared for an enemy. He cared for someone who was prejudiced against him. And he put his own life at risk. And he advanced money so that he redeemed him from slavery. That's what's happening here. And the, the audience is beginning to recognize this. It's starting to dawn on the more keen minds. This is the theological truth that Jesus is teaching. Verse 36. Now Jesus comes home with the kicker. He brings it home to the young lawyer was trying to trick him. Remember the the question was a qualifying question, who is my neighbor? Who can I narrow this down to? Jesus asks a question that says that even your question is wrong. Which of these three do you think proved him to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Who proved to be a neighbor? Not who can I eliminate so I can find out who my neighbor is? Who behaved as a neighbor? Who behaved as... And this man was so prejudiced in his answer, he could not even say the word Samaritan. He didn't want to answer. But he knew the answer. He just couldn't say it because he hated Samaritans that much. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And now here's the real kicker. Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. In other words, you go be like the Samaritan. <laughs> you, talk about, you talk about something that is in your face. Something is saying, forget your prejudice. Learn the character of God. Forget your hatred. Learn the character of God. And by the way, be like this man who you hate because the man in the story is more like God than you are yourself, the Jew. God calls you to be the neighbor. Forget who it is. You are called to be a neighbor. And Jesus was speaking to and through the prejudice of the day. To and through the warped idea of who God is. To and through the warped ideas of what it takes to get to heaven. He said, blow it all up because all of it's wrong. Blow it all up because God's better than you think and he loves more people than you think he does and he wants you to do the same. And when you understand that, you realize that it is impossible for you to do anything to inherit eternal life. That's what he's saying in the parable. That's what he's saying. And when you understand it in that context, in the context of the culture, the context of what really was happening in the story, it makes you wonder about yourself. It does me. Am I a neighbor? Am I more like the Samaritan or the priest? Am I more like the Samaritan or the Levite? Who am I? Am I like God? I, um, for 16 years, I hosted this show called Lifestyle Magazine, where we interview celebrities and authors and people with a great story. And we interviewed a man from Los Angeles whose name is Mr. Bezer. Now Mr. Bezer had two sons, and both of them had real physical challenges. One, very brittle bones. The boy, I, I've seen children, even in your pews, who jump a little bit you know, and move rather rapidly. Doing that could break one of his bones. He'd had dozens of bone breaks as just a child doing those common, everyday, childlike activities. He would break a bone. So he's been in the hospital with him and ER with this kid over and over again. The other child had such immune deficiencies and such problems that before he reached the age of 12, he had died in the arms of Mr. Bezer. He'd held his own son. he, He and his wife both worked, but he would often be the one who took this boy, now that he had left, to the hospital, to the ER with another broken bone, just as he had for his older son who was now deceased. And very often when he would be there at the hospital he went to, there would be other children there who were not accompanied by a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, but by a worker from the state. These were terminally ill children who were so ill they could not be placed anyplace. And typically, their fate was that they would die in an institution, usually alone. Because parents were either gone, abandoned them, or they were in jail, or some other way had proven themselves to be unfit to be parents, such as alcoholics and drug addicts, and the list goes on. These were children who were dying alone. And when Mr. Bazaar heard that, it broke his heart. He said, No child should die alone. Give them to me. Mr. Bazaar, you're not certified to be a foster parent. He got certified. Mr. Bazaar, these are critically ill children. You need additional training in order to care for them. He got the training. And he became the only certified foster parent in LA that would take terminally ill children to care for them. And it meant, it meant, that he had to quit his job while his wife continued to work to provide for them, and there was, the, the state pays something to take care of the children, but it's not much when you look at the cost of raising a child, especially a terminally ill child. It meant also that he set up his bed by the bed of the child who was terminally ill because that child would need help all through the night. It meant he forfeited sleep, forfeited his career, As he cared for these children, state workers would come in maybe for three or four hours a week to give him a breather. The rest of the time, he was there by those children. And to date, when I interviewed him on television, ten foster children had died in his arms. And he was caring for more at home with a state worker there so he could come be interviewed by us. And as I interviewed this man, I thought, what kind of love does it take to do that? Children of every race, children who had nothing and no one who could not give him what he was giving them, children who were going to die, what does it take to have the heart to do that? I thought, what love must exist in this man's heart? Did I forget to tell you that his first name, Mr. Bazaar's first name is Muhammad. He's a Muslim. Does that change the story? For some people it does. And that's what Jesus did with this story. And so he says to me, Mike, you go be like Mr. Bazaar. Love that way. Love people that way. Because that's what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus begs you by, the mercy, by his mercies, be the disciple and be the neighbor. You find those who are in need, and you love them the same way the Samaritan did, the same way Mr. Bazeo does. Love them like Jesus loves Because that's what it means to be a disciple, be a neighbor.